let's get back to that in our Bible. I want to read just one verse, and uh, that's verse number one. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into God's word for this morning together. Of course, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for another gift, another day of life that you have given us, life and liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for those things and pray, Lord, that you will help us to redeem the time, knowing that the days are evil. Thank you for each person that you brought out to be in the house of the Lord today. We know you have a plan for this service. Help us not to miss the blessing that you have for us simply because our thoughts could be uh, taken elsewhere with all of the many concerns and issues that we face in our lives. Help us to realize that while we do have to turn our attention to those things, it really isn't your will that we dwell on them now, save as our hearts are open to how you may speak to us and bless us even today in some of those needs. But may they not prove a distraction and uh, other things that would intrude and, and take away the blessing of your word. We pray that you'd just work by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you are the one who ministers to us today. May we be hungry, may we be expectant, may we know that you are able to meet our needs. And I pray, Father, you're just blessed now as I give out what you've given to me to give to people today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. For I pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Well, today is the 30th of December, and so it seems to me that it is a unique opportunity for us. We could look back across a whole year. We had a little bit of that in the opening of the Sunday school, as, or in the, in the Sunday school lesson, as uh, Brother Lee was recounting some of the natural disasters that have occurred during 2018. But we're only one day, one full day after today, from the beginning of a new year. And so we're sort of in a unique position. We can look back, we can look forward. It's always pretty much been my custom in my ministry to preach a sermon uh, in uh, relationship to the new year. But I guarantee you, anything you hear this morning will equally apply if we think back to the old year and see how God has proven the things we'll talk about for the new year to be true. And that's an interesting thing because God has proven faithful to us in 2018. He will prove faithful to us in 2019 as well, even though we really don't know what it holds. And that can be kind of scary in a lot of ways when you realize how quickly things can change. But not if the Lord is my shepherd. Most of us are familiar with this psalm. In fact, I, I wouldn't argue with you if you told me this was the most well-known passage in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23, we know it as the shepherd's psalm. What I want to talk to you a little bit today about is what it means to be God's child. Of course, we can't cover all of that in full, and our thoughts are going to kind of be limited, or, or they're going to be sort of directed by how this unfolds in the psalm. What does it mean to be God's child? And I want to make it more general that way, although we have two figures, really, that are in this psalm. The psalm is familiar. Most people would say that this is the shepherd's psalm. And I wouldn't argue with you on that one either. It starts off with that figure for the Lord. Notice verse 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd. But down when we get to verse number 5, it would appear, many Bible students feel that this is true, the psalmist seems to be taken up in the thoughts that he wants to present, and he seems to naturally carry over into some additional thoughts, which come to his mind maybe a little better suited to a different figure, not just the shepherd, but you'll notice verse 5, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. We don't normally think so much of shepherds preparing tables. So it may very well be that what, as I said, happens is the psalmist gets taken up in the thoughts that he wants to present. He starts out 
with the, using the figure of God as a shepherd. It's kind of a natural transition as some additional thoughts flow, what it means to be God's child. And uh, the figure changes a little bit to the gracious host. So whether we look at this in terms of the good shepherd, which we will, or the gracious host, which we also will, I find here six things. So we have a little bit more ground to cover, which means we can't talk about each one as much. But uh, maybe one or more of these will be uh, uniquely suited and a blessing to, uh, to your heart here today. That certainly is my prayer. First of all, in verse number one, he makes the statement, the Lord is my shepherd. But the statement that I want you to think about with me right now is the statement that follows from that. In the end of the verse, I shall not want. What I really want to get to, I'll have to preach my way to this so that you uh, see where I'm coming from with this thought. But what I would really like you to think about, what does it mean to be God's child? What did it mean to you in 2018? What, in light of this figure of speech and the first statement that David makes as a result of it, does it mean to you in 2019? And the first thing that I get out of this and that I want to present to you this morning is contentment. Of course, the author of the psalm is David. You can look at the superscription and it says that, a psalm of David. Now these superscriptions, I don't know if you realize this or not, these superscriptions, and sometimes we'll have something afterwards, these are not inspired. However, they do reflect the best understanding that Jewish students of the scriptures had as the Old Testament was analyzed by them and as some of their helpful comments were added. I don't doubt of it. If you think about someone writing as a shepherd, who would be better qualified really to write something like that than David because he was a shepherd king. He started off his career, if maybe we want to think of it that way, as a shepherd. And so much of what he has to say is colored by that. And so much of that background lends itself so well, really, to being a leader of people. Did you know that figure carries over into the church? Jesus Christ is known in the New Testament as the great shepherd, the good shepherd, and the chief shepherd. But it's the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. So we're thinking this morning a little bit about the good shepherd. It carries over into church because the pastor, that's if you know what the word means, pastor is pastoral, it means shepherd. And we understand that uh, the pastor's, one of the pastor's role, roles in his uh, job as that is to be the under shepherd. And so David is certainly uniquely qualified to tell us about all the ways of a good shepherd. One of the things that first comes to mind is the good shepherd is dedicating to being certain that the needs of the sheep are met. That's how we have to understand this statement. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, it doesn't mean that we'll not always, or that we will always have everything that we might want. Maybe you have a marginal reading in your Bible, I don't know, but want, if you think of it, the way it's translated here, want in the old English sense is, is perfectly a fine translation. But today we tend to think of our wants as something maybe a little bit more along the line of our desires, not so much our needs. But when he says this, if you really wanted a word, and maybe you have this as a marginal reading in your Bible that would take away any, any potential of our thinking in the wrong sense, the more modern sense of how we typically use the word want, it would be lack. So if you look down at your Bible, think of it that way, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Well, why is that true? It's true because the Lord is our shepherd. It's true because the shepherd dedicates himself to being certain that the needs of the sheep are met. I shall not lack. God doesn't always promise to supply our wants, does he? He's so good, the Bible talks about the fact that many times the Lord gives us the desires of our heart. That many times God talks about it just as if 
We come to verse 5 where it says, My cup runneth over, and God not only gives us our needs, but he gives us many of our desires as well. But this is not a promise that indicates that God will just give us everything that we might want. It is a promise that God will supply and meet all of our needs. You know, you have some wonderful other places in the Bible that address this. For example, if you look at across the page, you may not even have to turn. But this is an interesting comparison when you think about his statement, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 27 and verse 10, right over across the way, says, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And it's true that many times there are disappointments in life. Many times the natural friends or the natural resources that we think we have, sometimes things don't always go the way they ought to go or that we think they should go, and they fail. But God never does. God is consistent. God is faithful. Over in the New Testament, there's a, a tremendous verse that many, many people know by memory. And uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19 says, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Not our wants necessarily, but our needs. And a little while later, probably in the message, we'll look a little bit more thoroughly over in this context. Um, in fact, I think maybe now we'll do that. But God doesn't, in the, in the experience of Paul, not always were Paul's desires granted. But Paul could certainly testify to the fact that his needs were met. So if you were going there, go ahead and do that. Maybe you stopped part way, you were looking and stopped. Um, but in Philippians chapter 4, thinking about needs, this is kind of interesting what Paul unfolds here. Because he says in chapter 4, verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want. And there again, it has that idea of needs. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I was reading an article recently in the news about states that are depopulating, um, by which is simply meant these are really, really heavy tax load states. And it's some really interesting statistics to analyze how people are fleeing those states. Um, one of the examples that was given was the state of Illinois. Now, my son lives in Illinois, so I was interested in that. It said that Illinois' population um, has decreased in this year by 157,000, and that's basically the size of Rockford. If you're familiar with Illinois, that's a decent-sized city. That's way bigger than anything we have close at hand here, 157,000 people. Well, I can tell you the most least or the least populated state in the Union, so maybe it's not in the Union, that's the state of contentment. Not too many people live there. And one of the reasons for it is, is because our society is such that we're constantly, did you notice how even the stores know this? They have it set up so that when you go in Walmart and you get ready to check out, they've got all those little doodads there, have you ever noticed? And it's, it's really easy to say, wow, man, that Snickers looks good. Grab that. Or there's a pack of gum there or something else. You, oh, every, Walmart's the most frustrating place in the world to go. You know why? Because the moment you leave and get home, there's something else I need at Walmart. Did you ever notice that? It just, like, you get home and you look, and why, didn't I, why wasn't that on the list? But Paul is going through this. He says, not that I speak in respect of want, but then he gets down and he talks about this. I have learned. I always take a lot of encouragement from that because that shows that we're all, we're all in this growth process in our Christian life. It doesn't come naturally to us. But by and by as we watch God's faithfulness, he says in verse 11, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Now, there are times of great plenty, the times when the cup overflows in the life of Paul. Other times, not so much so. His needs were met, but 
Sometimes along the way we find circumstances in which there are trials, there are difficulties. You think of the children of Israel in the wilderness. I mean, they were kind of wondering from one day to the next where water was going to be, and that's a basic need of life. God was faithful to supply those needs, but along the way it wasn't always an easy journey. And Paul had that. He said, I, I've learned. I've learned how to be abased. I, I know when, when circumstances get a little tight, when finances are a little tough, when things along the way are challenging, I've learned that God has proven faithful. And then I've learned how to abound. I know sometimes God decides to open up the spigot just a little bit and let the, let the water flow increase. And on those days, I praise the Lord because I know that those days are also from his hand. There's another place, and we'll have to be quick with this, but just if you're in Philippians, Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 6 as well. I think you'll see where I'm getting to now with contentment because uh, you see this word mentioned in Philippians 4. There are two places in the New Testament he really talks about the subject of commit contentment. One we just looked at in Philippians 4, but in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he makes two state statements here about contentment. So in verse 6, notice, uh, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Excuse me. In verse 8, he says, and having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Now, how many of us can actually say that that's true of us? I mean, <laughs> you, know, you see what I'm, I'm saying about how, how we're sort of just used to the abundance and the plenty that surround us. Easy to begin to complain. But Paul says the unhappy people in life are people who are always grasping after more. And you see this as you get down a little bit further into the chapter because he says, um, but they that will be rich, verse number 9, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. He makes a statement for the love of money in the next verse is the root of all evil. And so that, that preoccupation with things, that desire for more, which is what covetousness is, robs us of this contentment. And I realize that most of us are not living a simple life, at least in a lot of ways we're not. But oh, to be able just to return to the simple truth that God is there and to know that God is enough. That's the secret of contentment. This is what the psalmist is talking about when he says, I shall not want. He knows that, like Paul talked about, there are going to be times of great plenty and there are going to be times when maybe it's not so much that way, but I have God. And I have this promise that he's always faithful and it yields contentment. In verse 2, we'll look at the second of these six things and it's calm. What does it mean to be God's child? It not only means that we can have contentment in our life and the, and the peace that that brings and, and the freeing of us from all this rushing after things all the time, but it means that we can have a certain calm. This verse says, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. And once again, you may refer to some marginal readings here because um, the sheep love the tender grass. And so what this is talking about is the pastures of tender green. The shepherd knows that. The shepherd knows exactly what best nourishes the sheep and brings them to the place of tender green grass, which they love. The Bible also goes on to say, he leadeth me beside still waters. And the shepherd knows that the psalmist not only enjoy and like and prosper with the tender green grass, but he also knows that they do not like rushing waters. Now, did you, have you stopped to think about, someone was joking earlier about 
uh, Brother Bob in the Sunday school opening, I, got, I remember this much. I know it was Brother Bob now. But he, he talked about the fact that he thinks we have rain in every season. And, uh, you know, it's really true. I was out the other day, and I was dumping some. Now, come on. It, it was biodegradable. It was bark and that kind of stuff. But I was dumping some of that over the bank, not trash, just stuff I know is going to. But there's a little bit of an incline there, and I'm stepping on this. Now, granted, I didn't just have shoes with very real aggressive treads on them. But I noticed, man, alive, I hardly put my weight as I was on this incline, then it started to slip. And what little thin cover was there, it just, that just wiped it right off and underneath because it's so wet. It's so wet down in that ground under there. But if you stop to think or just go up to any of these rivers, sometimes you pass them, and they, it seems like they've been high most of the time this year. Seems like when they just get back down a little bit, a, a new set of rain comes along, and, and here they are again. Well, it's scary. I mean, really, if you're thinking about a docile little stream, see there at the church in Huntington at the back of the property was Stone Creek, and you'd get to a certain point in the year when there hadn't been much rain, and it was just a docile little brook that ran, not a, it was a little bit wider than a brook, but just a docile little creek stream that ran by there. Some places, I mean, you just walk across it with no trouble at all. Some places, it's not deep enough to fish. But man, oh man, you get this stuff like what we've got now, and that thing becomes a raging torrent. It, it comes up out of the banks, it comes up into the fields, and uh, when you're exposed to that kind of thing, you realize the power of water. I never really realized that until I saw some of the floods over the years in this area. And I remember when Pastor Maurer had that Yugo, you remember that? And uh, he had that run-in with a bear, the Yugo lost. You don't know that story? I'm surprised you don't know that story. But I remember seeing a little car about the size of a Yugo. You're going out that road by the river there and headed to uh, Petersburg. And you get up on that bridge where you're going to come up to the, the top of that thing and turn right. And you look down that long expanse of a field. And there was a car clean down near the end of that. Well, how'd that happen? The rain caught, I mean, the, the, the water caught it. I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty bad. And I was looking in the, one of the weather stories, and uh, it talked about this, these winds that have been uh, coming down earlier in December on the Pacific Ocean. And even though these winds are maybe way, way offshore, maybe even 100 miles, they've contributed to several situations where they've had to put up warnings to people, don't, don't get near the surf because it may be certain death. Uh, these waves stirred up so far offshore by these winds just hitting the, the water and hitting the water and hitting the water and they had a really interesting picture of a lighthouse that it takes 134 feet to break over the top of that lighthouse and they had pictures of, of it doing that. I wouldn't want to be the light keeper. I'm sure that it was probably automated. There was no one up in there but that wouldn't do it for me at all folks to be up in some little tower and have the, a wave coming at me like this. This is really scary. Well, see, the sheep don't like that. It's nice to go there by the little bubbling brook and listen to its song. It's another thing to have a raging torrent of water that brings up all kind of connotations of fear. The Good Shepherd knows the sheep don't like that. The Good Shepherd knows that in the, in the, the pastures of tender green grass, the sheep will lie down. They don't lie down unless they're satisfied. And also, in order to meet their needs, he leads them beside the still waters, the waters, as the margin will tell us, of quietness. God makes it a point to do that to us and for us and doesn't look down on us because he knows that that is our need. 
The Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. And as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pity those who fear him. God knows the rushing river disquiets us. God knows the bubbling brook brings calm. There's an interesting verse in Numbers chapter 10, and I, I think this is a good one for us because when we think of the children of Israel in the wilderness, I mean, those are not real conducive, calming surroundings. The journey is that way, folks. I mean, not every day is just tranquil. You know, some of, some of the days are difficult. Sometimes things come at us. And if you think of the children of Israel in the wilderness, this verse that I'm interested in, verse 33, interested because it uses this same word. But it says in Numbers 10.33, and they departed from the Mount of the Lord, so that would be Mount Sinai, three days' journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. Do you know that's what the Lord's Day is supposed to be? I mean, really, God said that before there was ever a Sabbath or before there was ever a Lord's Day, that there was that need of rest. And God built that into our very nature and creation and built it into creation itself to offer that for us if we honor it and if we allow God to restore to us that tranquility and calm that he knows that we need. Too bad that, as with contentment, so often we're looking in the wrong place for the calm. But God brings the needed calm. God has the ability to quiet our souls, doesn't he? Jesus said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the good shepherd. What does it mean to be God's child in 2019? What did it mean in 2018? The third thing it means is correction. There are a lot of thoughts in this verse, more than what we can talk about, but we'll call it that. Verse 3 says, he restoreth my soul. There are a lot of things we can talk about with that, but I remember when I was in seminary and was taking Hebrew, I've forgotten exactly why we looked at this verse or why I looked at this verse. Maybe I was just doing some study on this particular verse. I noticed something about this verb and the, the state it's in in Hebrew that the commentators will tell you this if you look for it. I had just never really seen this before, but the, the, the force of this the way this is translated for us, a more literal sense of this would be something like this. He causeth my soul to return. Well, that opens up all kinds of vistas for us, if we think, because we realize that what do sheep do? Well, the hymn writer put it this way, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's really true, isn't it? I mean, sheep tend to stray. Someone has said that sheep aren't real smart, and sometimes we aren't real smart either. And they wander sometimes unknowingly. Sometimes they just stray off the path. That's what the shepherd's there for. Because if you continue reading in the verse, it says, he restoreth my soul, causeth my soul, cause, causes me to return. Oftentimes the soul is, is used for the idea of the person himself. Causes me to return. Why? Because I tend to stray, and he knows the right paths. That's what it says in the next phrase. It says, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And once again, um, a little digging on this helps us quite a bit, because uh, what are you thinking when you read the phrase, paths of righteousness? Um, you thinking just that God wants us to be righteous? Well, he certainly does. But see, that's just a, a, 
a way in the original language to say exactly how we would put this in English, you would say right paths. That's how you would say this in English. Right paths. God knows the right paths, just like the shepherd does. The shepherd knows the right paths for the sheep. And so sometimes, if you can imagine now the shepherd with his staff, and the sheep gets a little bit off kilter, maybe just sort of have one that wants to sort of stray off from the rest of them. And as we go along the journey, we tend to do that too, and God comes along with that staff and just sort of taps us a little bit. You're going left. He taps on the left. You need to go right. Get back over here this way. God knows what the right paths are. He knows exactly where we need to be. But sheep tend to wander, and the Bible tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So whether intentionally or knowingly, the shepherd causes the sheep to return. He knows the right paths. Trust in the Lord, the Bible says, with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. He knows the right paths. There's going to be a lot of situations out there in 2019, and you're going to be wondering what the right path is. And it's wonderful to know that we can pray to God. We have his word, and God can reveal that to us. But I think of something else I want to say before I leave this, and that is this. The idea of restoring my soul. So what, what if we, causing my soul to return. So what if we think a little bit of the soul, not so much as thinking of the whole person, which it it can very well stand for. But what if we think about our inner being? Um, what if we think like maybe in terms of the soul and spirit? What if we think in terms of things that just um, crush those? Because that happens, you know. Do you know Joni Erickson Tava? Do you know her story? Let me tell you this in brief, but it's the summer of 1967. She and her sister decide that they're going to go horseback riding and end up at the Chesapeake Bay for a swim. Doesn't turn out well for her. She dives into the water. The water turns out to be very shallow. She strikes her head and becomes a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. Can you imagine what that would do to your spirit? So during the next two years of painful, often painful rehabilitation in which she learned things like how to paint with your mouth. Imagine that. It's like the guy that couldn't use his hands for Braille and learned to do it with his tongue. It's just amazing some of the things that you hear about or what she struggled with in her spirit in terms of what this dis disability meant for her faith. Because at times she found herself tempted to be angry with God wondering why God had allowed it to happen and, or why God had even allowed her in that particular crippled condition to survive. Why not just take her home? Wouldn't that be easier? She found it difficult, if not impossible, for the time at least to reconcile what had happened to her, her condition, with her belief in a loving God. But one night, in her interaction with a friend, she became convinced that God really did understand. Here's how it went down. The friend who was seeking to be an encouragement to her, she said, you know, Joni, Jesus knows how you feel. He was paralyzed. 
stop and think about that for a minute and say, I wonder what she's talking about. She went on to say, he couldn't move. He couldn't change position on the cross. He was paralyzed by the nails. They held him in place. The more she thought about that, as she tells her story, she said the realization was to her profoundly comforting that God became increasingly close to her and eventually she came to understand to stand again. This is the idea of he causes my soul to return because it's not something we don't know, it's just something that's been tested. And now we really need to know it. It's one thing to talk about it for other people, it's another thing to know it's true for you. Now all of a sudden it becomes true for her that she realizes that God truly does love her. It all comes back to her. It's this idea of restoring the, the broken and crushed spirit that God is able to do. She said she prayed for healing and she said truly believed it would come. The more she read the Bible, she said she read about our bodies being glorified and came to realize, this is kind of interesting, she will be healed. I'm just going through, she said, a 40 or 50 year delay. And God stays with me even through that. That's back to contentment. But this is the idea of correction. God brings us back to truths that we've known but have been severely tested by events in our lives. This is what it means to be a child of God. In verse 4 we find comfort. Look at that verse. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear, fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The words right in the text. Comfort. If you're here today and don't need any comfort, put your hand up. That's kind of what I thought. Well, we don't always go around talking about it. Sometimes too personal, sometimes we're too macho. But... The need is there. God knows that we need that. Along the journey that we take, just as the sheep go out, we face, we face pitfall and we pay, face danger. God wants us to know that he's up to any danger. Doesn't matter how big it is. That's the reason I think he chooses death, because that seems to be the biggie for most people. And why not? How many people here have ever died? think about that for a moment. We don't have too many people here that have died and then come back and can tell you, oh, it's a, it's a breeze. No problem. No, it's an unknown. And so is 2019. I can tell you that right now. It's a huge question mark. But no matter what pitfall it may be, straying off into some place that's not safe, or danger that we might face, perhaps the greatest one is picked out here so that we might realize that it covers Everything that is said here covers everything else. The one that's off the charts. If you've got the one that's off the charts under control, the ones that are on the charts are a little easier to deal with. In that valley, the Lord whose staff signals his presence. A little tap here and there. The one whose rod signals protection. Think of the rod as like a big cudgel. <laughs> You know, you need a club for a certain job. You don't need a club, generally speaking, for the sheep, but you might need a club for the bear or some other animal or wolf that threatened the sheep. He says, thy rod and thy staff. 
what do those things stand for? Well, they stand for his presence. They stand for his protection. Do we know in the unknown, whatever it is that we face in this new year, God's presence and protection are with us. We can face whatever it, it is when it comes with comfort and peace. Did you ever hear of someone who got into this big discussion about dying grace? Somebody maybe says to somebody else, well, do you have dying grace? And that immediately makes the person that gets asked the question feel kind of like, oh, I must not be very spiritual. I don't have dying grace. Well, no, you don't. And you aren't going to until you come to it. It's a matter of trusting God, see, because he gives us this day our daily bread. And if that experience is in today for you, then God will have that grace when you get to that point and when you need it. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. It's a great comfort. I always like the verse, used it many times with people in these circumstances. Psalm 116, might be verse 15. Don't, don't, you'll have to verify it. But precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I always like that because God has a good bedside manner. Not every doctor does. I'm sure everyone here has learned that already. Some of them are grim. Some of them are gruff. Some of them maybe have a little bit of a more polished manner. But precious is a word that's more tender, more intimate. And God is there. God is there. And God takes care of us in that time when we have that special need. Then in verse 5, there's care. Thou preparest a table. See, this is where the figure sort of shifts, but it's, it's like the psalmist is on a roll. He's talking about all these things, and he's got some more to talk about. And he finds another useful illustration. The gracious host. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. I like that. Well, I don't like it, but I like the thought that it brings. That middle phrase, in the presence of mine enemies. You have any enemies? Yeah, you do. Some you just don't know yet. But even if you can't think of anybody in this life who has proven unfaithful and proven to be a Judas, you can certainly think of the enemy of your soul. You can certainly think of the evil one. He is definitely an enemy that we have. In the presence of mine enemies, well, what would it say to you? I mean, you don't normally think about this but if someone were to set up a scene, just think of, it, think of it this way, like maybe you're creating a scene for a play or something like that. And the children of Israel, this was one of the things that they tempted God with. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Remember that? Because you don't normally think in the wilderness, that's kind of a hostile environment and you know, it's arid, especially in the Holy Land, and there's more stones than in Pennsylvania, which is a lot. And it's hot, and the sun's bearing down on you, and there's no water, and you don't normally think of coming up on a feasting table. Same way with enemies. You don't normally think, but if you would find that, it wouldn't be lost on you. Who's at the table? Your enemies aren't at the table. You and God are the ones at the table which means that God's favor is on you and your enemies have to see that and understand that, that God is with you, God loves you. This is what it means to be God's child. 
2018 and 2019. To have someone who bestows his care on us in such a way that even though at times we have to wait, God knows when life's injustices have come our way. God knows when people have treated us unfairly and wrongly. If we get out of God's way and don't seek to remedy that on our own behalf, God's fully capable of preparing for us a table in the wilderness. God's fully capable. He did, you know. They tempted him with that, and God brought quail and brought, God brought bread. Now, God is in such control that in spite of enemies, people who might do us wrong in this life or wish us evil, God brings a gracious plenty. If you look a few pages across the way, you will have to turn on this one if you want to see the verse, but still in the book of Psalms, Notice quickly Psalm 104. This will kind of give you some ideas of what's at the table. Psalm 104, verse 15. The psalmist mentions this in Psalm 23, verse 5 also. When he says here, though, in the other verse, 104, verse 15, And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. God's got it all, see, because if you're out there where it's arid, your, your, your skin gets chapped. It's just like, you know, I always finally, well, I finally figured this out. Why do my hands get so dry and chapped in the wintertime? Uh, well, you idiot, you're six times or more during the day, you're sticking on a pair of welder's gloves or something like that and sticking them right in a wood stove. No wonder they get dry. And then I have to, and then I sometimes it took me a while to figure this out. And then you get down the road, why in the world? I have to call my wife on the phone and say, I don't know why it is my lips are chapped. Finally figured me out, well, you idiot, the air conditioner's blowing at you right on your lips. Dries your lips out. And first thing you know, you're tugging on some little loose piece of skin on the first thing you know, you're bleeding. Need that chapstick. I've got one everywhere I can go. I've got one in the car. So I don't have it in my pocket now, but I've got one in the car. I've got one on the table before you go out of the house in case I need it there. I've got one right by the bed. I've got one right where I sit in the living room. If I don't have them in all the places I want them, I ask for them in my stocking for Christmas. I don't want to get too far away from chapstick. God knows when we need that oil to refresh us, just like our idea of a shower and then maybe afterwards some skin conditioner to kind of get things back restored where they're comfortable for us. And he says this in the verse. He says, Thou preparest a table before me. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. You know, in this life and in this church right now, I'm not saying it goes this way and this way on either side of the aisle because there'll be some over here and there'll be some over there. You have to ask yourself, are you an empty cupper? Half, is the cup to you when you look at it half empty or half full? Because, you know, people look at life different ways. And some folks, you ask them, hey, how you doing? And immediately you realize that was a mistake. Because for the next 20 minutes, they're going to tell you how they are, and most of it's negative. I learned years ago as a pastor, that's just part of the job. You have to listen to that. Do the best you possibly can just to keep a straight face, a smile, and let them talk it out. Sometimes it's therapeutic for them. Sometimes it's therapeutic for all of us, but, you know, with God's... In God, God doesn't have it half full. He doesn't have it half empty. It's overflowing. Then he says this in the last. What does it mean to be God's child 
in 2019. Last thing it means is confidence because God is a God of assurance. You notice the word surely? It doesn't say maybe. He's pretty sure about this. God is a God of assurance. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, in that word follow is something really interesting because there's two ways you can follow someone. You can follow someone aggressively like that guy that drives on your bumper. Right? You ever have that happen? I don't like that. I get tempted to do things I shouldn't do in the flesh. I get tempted to hit the brakes, stuff like that. But these are aggressive drivers, right? They're right up on your tail. But uh, in a sense, it's a good thing. And then there are people that follow kind of half-heartedly. They're not real close. They're kind of back aways, not so sure whether they want to be there or not. This is more that God's an aggressive driver in this case because this is the idea of pursuit. Not somebody who's sort of lagging back and not quite certain what their commitment is to the thing. This is actually aggressive pursuit. The idea that goodness and mercy, the psalmist says, are God is going to aggressively follow me with those things all the days of my life. Why is that? Because God's not timid about blessing us. He wants to. God has a boatload of good things he wants to do for us, and I'm not preaching the health and wealth gospel. Because God knows what's good and I don't. Sometimes our definitions are different. God knows what is good for me. God knows what isn't good for me. And what God knows is good, really is good. Each step of the way, God is there, always wanting to bring his goodness and to show his mercy, which, as I was acquainting you with once before, this is that word hesed that means unfailing love. God's always faithful. He's always there. I want to say this to you as we sort of bring this last thought to a close. I said a minute ago, God's the God of assurance. Look at the next phrase in the verse, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So along the journey, what can I be confident of? Because God is the God of assurance. He wants to bless me. If I'll just get out of the way and let him. He promises to be with me. What about at the end of the journey? Do I have to worry about that? You know, some people do. Even some people who sit in churches do. Even some people who sit in churches that preach the Bible do. You know, there was a man on one occasion, he was an older man, and he had the privilege of talking with this, about this concern to Harry Ironside. This is what he told him. It was a problem with assurance. He said, I will not go on unless I know I'm saved or else know it's hopeless to seek to be sure of it. I want a definite witness, something I can't be mistaken about. Well, so Ironside looked at me and said, well, I'll tell you what, what would it take to assure you? He said, if you, if an angel were to appear to you and tell you you were saved, he said, would that bring you the assurance that you seek? Well, he said, yes. He said, I think you could trust an angel. He said, an angel wouldn't tell you a fib. Ironside said, well, what if you got to your deathbed? And the angel appeared, and it turned out to be Satan who transforms himself into an angel of light and said, I was that angel. What would you say then? And the man was speechless. He didn't know what to say. Well, Ironside then went on and said exactly the point that he was trying to make. He said, God is more dependable than the voice of an angel. He's given us his son. He that hath the son hath life, it says in 1 John 5, 12. 
And then he has not only given us his son, but he's given us his word. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know. K-N-O-W. Doesn't say think. It says know. Do you ever think about how many times the Bible talks about confidence that God's children can have? Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Confident. And if you're here today, and for whatever reason, you're not confident. Especially if you're not confident that you're saved. If there's a doubt about that, just know this. God doesn't want it to be that way. And this isn't just a feel-good thing. This is what God knows we need and what God has promised us. And if you've trusted Christ as Savior and you still haven't grasped that, this is a part of your heritage as a child of God. Because my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, the Good Shepherd said. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You can think about, and I trust maybe one or more of these thoughts will stand you in good stead today and as you think about this psalm in the future. What more could we ask for along the way of the future, the way of the unknown? Probably a lot, but this is enough. But just think about this as we close. Everything that we've talked about, everything, contentment, calm, correction, comfort, care, confidence. Now you're going to go back to verse 1 and just look at it one more time. Do that, would you? Just look right down at verse number 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Everything that he says, all those points we just made, flow out of that relationship. None of what I said is going to be true in its fullest impact unless you know you have that relationship that the Lord is your shepherd. And so if you're here today and you're not sure you're saved, or if you're here today and you just say, Preacher, I haven't really meant not to be saved, but I'm not sure I am saved, then the psalm really applies when we know the Lord is our shepherd. Lord, we pray that you'll bless us here today. May this help be a help to us, a tone setter for this new year. And Lord, I do believe if we're honest, if we look back at 2000